Hello, welcome to the Golf 4 Podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. We've all heard the saying, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Or in my opinion, the much more entertaining version, it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near one. Thank you, Mr. Tolkien. Anyway, I'm sure you'll have guessed that today's episode is all about planning. And being the switched on sort that you are, you will also deduce we'll be specifically talking about educational planning. As discussed on the show already, education is a fundamental human right and is key to achieving economic and social development. But for quality education to be delivered, it must be planned effectively and thoughtfully. This involves a variety of things, most notably the development of policies, programmes and strategies that ensure that education is inclusive, equitable and of high quality. It also involves identifying the resources needed to implement these policies and the stumbling blocks that may be encountered along the way. Enter UNESCO's International Institute for Educational Planning. IIEP, as it's known in the business, is a specialised institute of UNESCO that works with countries to strengthen their capacity to plan and manage their education systems. Through their technical assistance, training, research activities, IIEP is making a significant impact on education planning around the world. Their work is helping to ensure that every child, regardless of their background or circumstances, has access to a quality education that will prepare them for a successful future. On top of this, the Institute has recently acquired a new global training practice lead. Dr Beatrice Pont, a renowned expert in global education policy and reform, equity and school leadership, is set to play an instrumental role in shaping the Institute's global training offer to respond to the new realities and needs of education systems worldwide. I'm very happy to say she's paused all of that for at least half an hour in order to tell me all about IIP and the importance of educational planning. Beatrice Pont. Welcome to Goal 4. Good morning. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you for joining me. Beatrice, you've recently started a new role as Global Training Practice Lead at UNESCO's International Institute for Educational Planning, also known as IIEP. Firstly, can you tell me a little bit about this institute? What is it and what are its aims? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the IIEP's mandate is to strengthen the capacity of UNESCO member states to plan and manage their education systems effectively. And in order to do this, we do three types of activities. The first one is training. The second one is a technical cooperation with countries. And the third is research and development. And uh, we focus mainly on um, African countries now is about 76% of our portfolio and uh, countries in fragile situations as well. But we really cover all UNESCO member states and uh, our focus in enhancing planning, finance, data and governance capacities, management for improving learning, equity and resilience and flexible pathways for skills and lifelong learning. Basically, that's our mission. Okay, brilliant. And and tell me about planning. Lots of people will hear the word planning in education and think about lesson plans or things that teachers fill out before they go into a classroom. Now, we're talking about something quite different here. Uh, definitely, yes. Um, so planning at IIP is a very 
specific way of thinking about education policy, and that is um, when you enter in a ministry of education, you need to assess uh, the system, understand what the system looks like, and then develop um, policies to respond to the challenges that the education system faces. So developing a plan requires um, skills to analyze the data, analyze the situation, understand what are the main strengths of the system, the main challenges, and then developing policies. So this is the, the concept of planning that IIEP um, uses. However, at IIP, we have three offices. We have one in Buenos Aires, one in Dakar, and one in Paris. And the concept of planning varies across countries internationally. So, for example, in Buenos Aires, in Latin American countries, the concept of planning is more policymaking rather than planning. And it depends very much how ministries are um defined whether they have a planning office or a policy office or a policy analysis office. So so it varies by country, but the concept is education policy and planning more broadly. Okay. I see what you mean. And how does this tie into the the trainings that you offer? And you mentioned one of those one of those three areas that IIP uh, works in is training, the technical cooperation and the, the research and development. I'm interested specifically on the training side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, you lead a team of specialists who deliver training programs that aim to strengthen the capacity of education policymakers and planners. Mm -hmm. And I know all about this because I've worked on one myself. Could you give me a brief overview of what kind of training programs you offer in context of of the planning that you were just talking about? how How do the two How do the two work together? Well, actually, the IIP was started in the 60s when they started a, almost a master level program for education planners. And this program lasted about a year and a half. And learners would come to Paris for that time and uh, learn about uh, what is planning, how to plan, what are education policies, how to um, use data, develop data, analyze data. Uh, in education, how to develop education monitoring systems. Um, and so over the years, we've been training, we've trained since this, since the 1966, we've trained more than 30,000 participants. And we have three or four types of training. The first is our core training offer, which is focused on developing core planning skills for people working in ministries or people working also in, in donor agencies or in or sometimes um, experts, external experts. Then um, we also have tailor-made training, and this is to, to respond to specific either, either ministries or countries or other agencies who may come to us and say, listen, we would like for you to develop a course on a specific topic that we know there's a high demand. And so we, we've we done, for example, last year, we did 17 tailor-made training and we had more than a thousand participants. And I'll give you a couple of examples, a learning cycle on diagnostic tools for system analysis, or a course on gender responsive education planning, or the course that you were in on disability inclusive education or crisis sensitive education planning. So this is uh, tailor-made training. And then 
as part of our technical cooperation projects, we also have project embedded training. And so there we have, for example, helping in Haiti specific um, developing their education sector analysis, for example, or refining education sector plan results and indicators, or monitoring and evaluation. And one fourth uh, strand of work that we have is working with um, national training institutions and helping them set up their, their own training programs for their own officials. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, the type of training that we do. And it's very targeted, very focused. So we are kind of the go-to institute on education planning internationally. The tailor-made training sounds really interesting. Um, say, for example, someone was listening to the show in a in a certain country, a policymaker or a, a ministry staff worker. What what would they do if they wanted to organize a tailor-made training session? What steps would they take to to get in touch and to to make that happen? Um, well, there's two ways. One of them would be to to reach out to us, reach out to me or to my team, and uh, and tell us, listen, we are interested in you developing a training program for us on this topic. And so we organize, of course, a call with them to understand what their needs are. And then if if it is if it falls within the remit of our specialization, we don't do training where we don't know the topic, then we would engage with them and, and organize a whole process where we do a needs assessment. So we would go to the country and have a, a one-day workshop to really understand the needs, who the learners would be, what skills they would need to acquire through the training, and to define the learning objectives, the learning the learning pedagogy, and the whole process, and then develop a, a TOR, a terms of reference for the course. And then we would um, develop it at IIP. We have a, a very a high-quality online learning campus that you've been part of actually that um, I remember it well <laughs> yeah where we have so we could either do the training online or in person in the country and uh, we would then develop a budget of how much this would cost of course and uh, and discuss with the with the people in the country then um, if we agree, then we move forward and, and design the training and find the right people to deliver the training. And I have a team of pedagogical experts who who work with the with the content experts to design and deliver the training. And uh, normally these are about, we run them for six weeks, one day a week of, um, of in-person uh, meeting online. And the rest, there's a lot of exercises and tests and tools and, and all kinds of videos online. And um, the, the people work together actually quite a lot. We engage with them. Although it's online, it is, they're not self-paced. We're really quite involved and it develops a, a cohort uh, friendship in a way through the training. And uh, at the end of the course, they would get an IIP uh, certificate. Yeah, I think that that cohort and friendship is important as well because it it brings together lots of people that may not have been in touch previously. Yeah, particularly in the I remember in the course I was I was helping with we had a lot of different people from different countries within the region 
And they all started working together on these projects, sharing knowledge, sharing information. It was really great to see. It's amazing. Yeah, we had we we just finished a course that lasted nine months with 39 participants. Only one dropped out at the beginning and that was it. They all stayed through the nine months and there were people from all over the place, from Madagascar, from Guyana, from, you know, I don't know, Sudan, from all over. It's amazing. So when they meet every week and you see them online, it's really, it's it's a present. It's incredible. And I remember some of the focus on the course I was working on was on school leadership. Much of your previous work is focused on this area. Can you speak a little bit about school leadership? Why are school leaders such an important piece of the goal for puzzle? Yes. So in in my previous job at the OECD, I was working on education, pol- supporting countries with their education reforms. And as well, I was I ran a quite a large project on school leadership. And then I also did my PhD thesis on school leadership in the middle of all of this. And uh, because precisely it is the forgotten link, school leaders have such an important role to play if we want schools to be good. Yet uh, school leaders in many countries before were normally teachers who were invited to become a school leader. And um, they don't necessarily have the skills to be able to 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 run a school, to lead a school, to do the finances, to do everything that is necessary to effectively lead something. And so um, I, I we've done a lot of research and know that what what they can do is set the right environment for schools to work well, to work effectively. It's very indirect, but very necessary. And uh, many governments have not invested enough in in developing effective school leaders, supporting them, and uh, making them have a, a, a good career. So in many countries, it's a teacher that gets invited to be a school principal for a little bit. And so how can you lead a school when it's very difficult to have the time and to have the resources to be able to do that? So uh, they are key to any reform that any government wants to make. And if they're not involved, the chances that the reform will happen are very low. So it's something that needs a lot more investment. Well, they they set the tone within a school. I mean, from my experience teaching, I was working in a school and and halfway into my my teaching uh, there, the, the school leadership changed mm-hmm. and the school had almost a perceptibly different feel to it. You could you could tell almost overnight the whole the whole feel of the place changed. Different um, factors became different priorities. Um, some some in like a good way, some in a bad way. But but just the very act of having a different person at the top of the school was was so noticeable. You know, from from the work that you've done with school leaders, how can these people be more involved in? In work, I mean, particularly around areas of inclusion in education of of marginalized learners. I think effective school leaders are the ones that set the tone for the whole school to be equitable, to have high quality education and to have equity. And that is if they embed this in the ethos of the school, in the ethos of the teachers and of the students and of the community that surrounds them, then it is 
an effective school. And uh, we know that those schools that that um, have used inclusive, I think even curriculums that are more inclusive end up being better for everyone, not only for those that are, you know, from disadvantaged uh, communities or who have disabilities. So, so more and more principals or, or school leaders are having to work with very diverse populations more and more. So they have to learn uh, how to handle well, how to integrate well, um, all kinds of people that have, you know, a very diverse backgrounds. And that is something that the problem is that they're not trained to do this. And so if it's not a professional approach to doing this, it's based on individual people's perspectives. And so what's important is to make sure that if this is a priority that it should be, then how can they do it? That they have the right training to understand how to take care of it at the school level and then that they have the resources and the capacity to do it. So I think it's quite important, but it needs to be professionalized and not left to them, which is what often happens. Policymakers, they put a new you know, the new program and then send it off to schools. You do this one. And so principals are overwhelmed with all kinds of new priorities that governments may have and they can't handle them all. So they need to choose and and really have the right resources and support to be able to do it. Yeah. And that was your, a lot of your work at the OECD was was around that. Um, While you were at that organization, you also produced a report titled Equity in Education, Supporting Disadvantaged Students in Schools. Are you able to tell me a little bit about that report? Uh, yes, um, that was uh, the follow-up to another project that we did on equity called 10 Steps in Equity in Education. And we looked at how uh, OECD education systems were tackling equity in countries and uh, by equity, we meant, we defined, uh, because equity is so many things to so many different people. There's so many definitions of equity. So we looked at it and said, okay, after uh, doing an analysis of all the different definitions, and this was already in 2005 or earlier, we said, okay, for equity, you need to have um, inclusion and um fairness and inclusion. These were the two concepts that uh, you could meet if you had equity. And fairness means that everybody has the same chances to have a high quality education. And inclusion means that no matter who you are, you should have a good quality education, no matter what your background is. And we found a number of systems who are, who according to PISA, excel in equity that they can go to any neighborhood school and receive the same quality education. While other systems, there's a lot of inequality across um, schools and uh, and 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 the, who you are makes a huge difference into the results that you have. So after now, when you all, just to oh, just to interrupt you there, I'm sorry, but when you say different systems, do you mean um, do you mean different countries or do you mean countries. sort of regions within? Countries. No countries, countries. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, with this report, we try to 
see how we could help countries think about equity. And we developed a set of guiding recommendations in a way. And one of them, they were based on looking at the system and looking at schools. What could you do at the system level to reduce inequalities? And what could you do at the school level to reduce inequalities? So at the system level, we developed a set of recommendations like reducing early tracking, uh, strengthening early childhood education, um, having, making sure that school choice was uh, looked at better so that it didn't generate inequalities, um, and having strong vocational education and training programs and pathways that weren't closed and dead ends. And then for schools, we recommended that there should be, of course, strong principals and leaders that would be able to lead this and that they would schools had the capacity to look at the at the scheduling that uh, one of the issues is um, when a school doesn't believe in their children because they are of a low uh, they are in a disadvantaged area they don't believe they can learn and having high aspirations is key to having high education outcomes. And so making sure that at the school level that they believe that everybody can perform and that makes a huge difference actually. So making sure that schools do believe and have an ethos and uh, that all schools, all children can achieve in their schools. And then and the last area is having strong links with the families and the communities, especially in disadvantaged uh, areas, makes a very large difference as well. So. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's so important to bring all those different people together. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you, you are currently leading a key UNESCO institute. And prior to that, you worked at the OECD, where you where you completed your, your PhD. What first made you want to pursue a career in education? <laughs> well, um, since I was young, I wanted to pursue a career in education. And I did. I studied political science and uh, public policy. And then I think it was in my master's when I took a course on public policy and education that I thought this is where I want to move towards. Because... I've had wonderful professors, wonderful teachers, and I think that's the most inspirational thing that anybody could have and that it makes such a large difference in an individual's life what your chances are to have a good education. So for me, if I wanted to work in the world, I wanted to be meaningful and uh, education for me has the most meaning of, of any of the of the jobs that I could ever uh, find. So it was very, uh, for me, that's what I wanted to do. And in that long career, do you have any memorable moments that you'd like to share? Or of any, can you think perhaps of any success stories that you've seen from your, from your work in international education? Well, I have so many memorable moments. I have... Many of them are vis visiting countries to assess and to provide, you know, our 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 work. To and so when you travel to a country, you with a, I would travel to a country with a team of experts normally, different experts on the topic that were so for equity or school leadership. And uh, you visit schools, and I would meet principals and children 
And always going into the classroom was the most rewarding, uh, memorable moments. And um, speaking with with kids and asking them what did they want to do and what they thought of their teachers, what they thought of their school. They know so well, even from ages 10, 12, they tell you who a good teacher is, who a bad teacher is, <laughs> whether even if they're tough, they know that they're learning. So they're really, for me, that was quite memorable. Um, also strong memories are when I think <laughs> I think I've been able to have impact through our work and um, the work of school leadership was particularly meaningful because we started in a time when there was not that much in the policy realm. There was a lot of research, but in the policy realm, it was always, as I said, the forgotten link. So when we started working with countries uh, countries did a report and then we worked with them and some countries set up their own training program for principals. So in Finland, in Norway and in other countries, our work had impact and it led to actual change. And so with other countries as well, I've worked with Ireland, with Norway, with Mexico, with Japan. And in many of these, what we've done and with Sweden, many of these had made a large difference actually and uh, the third so one is the the kids the children and the and this visits to the schools then having impact and the re- third is the experts that I've been able to meet through the work I think when you are in an international organization you reach out and you don't we don't know everything we are moderators between the policy, the research, and the practice. And so you reach out to experts who have been writing and reading and doing research, and you take them on board and they enrich you. And uh, you learn so much from them as well. So it only strengthens you and the work that you do with countries. So I think these are, for me, the three. One among the memorable, but I have many more, but <laughs> I will, I'll stop here. I'm sure there are, and I'm sure the impact has been huge that you've been talking about. Before I let you go, I would finally like to hear your thoughts on the the future of education. In your view, what needs to happen to ensure that everyone has access to quality education? It's a million-dollar question, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, there's so much research and so much knowledge out there already of what we need to do. You know that if you want to have a high-quality education, you need to have high-quality teachers. And what that means is evolving because the world is evolving. And and so, but you need to select them well, train them well, and, and, and you know, fund them well and, and uh, continue training them and making sure that schools are well supported. I think it depends very much whether you're talking about developing countries or developed countries. Um, But uh, my experience has been working always with education policymakers and they are, you know, the ones that are moderating whether uh, quality education is uh, provided for. And so what I see is that Education policymakers require capacity building. They require um, to look at the profession in a long-term perspective, making sure that um, 
policies don't just turn over every time there's a new government, that there's a lot more um, planning, stable planning, and also responding to adversities, having the capacity to respond in uncertain times. But uh, for me, the the quality of policymaking needs to be sound. And it's changed quite a lot uh, because now schools, even more since COVID, they're making a lot more decisions. And so there needs to be a balance between trust in the professions, trust in the schools and policymakers, and a lot more working collaboratively in order to make the change that are required for schools rather than the top-down approach of policymaking. So, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's so many things that, uh, that uh, need to happen. First is quality teachers. Second, I think the quality curriculum, what we teach is very important. If you're teaching, if you're teaching a curriculum that is really repetitive and, and uh, something that doesn't interest the kids, the chance that they will learn will be very low. So, and the third is the quality of the policymaking. So I would say these three areas are very important for the future. Beatrice Bond, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Richard. It's been a pleasure to join you. That was Dr. Beatrice Bond. My thanks to her for joining me today. And thank you for listening. If you want to find out more about IAP or Beatrice's work, check out the links in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Goal 4. If you did, why not share it with your friends? You can also subscribe and listen to a new episode every Wednesday. I'll see you next week.